Everybody, hope you all had a great weekend. We're here back on To The Point on this Monday, July 17th. An interesting weekend in the, in the world of sports. Lots to dive into, a number of different topics. Major League Baseball is back, has some thoughts on some of the series this weekend and some trade consideration. Rory McIlroy wins again on the PGA Tour. We have a major this week. Some UFC thoughts, a crazy CFL weekend, but I want to start at the All England Club in London, England. Yesterday, the the host of one of the better matches of my lifetime. You had the old buck meeting the young calf, if you will. Novak Djokovic, the 23-time major champion, going toe-to-toe with 20-year-old phenom Carlos Alcaraz. This was the final that Wimbledon wanted. This was the final that the, the mothership wanted when they put it on TV. You want ratings. These were the two men to have on it. The two best tennis players in the world right now on the best surface at the best venue. Take out the royal family handing out the trophies. You have a a perfect combination there. It's a perfect storm. But yesterday we saw four hours, 30 plus minutes of phenomenal tennis. We saw a 27 minute game where Alcaraz fought his way to a crucial hold in the third set. And through all of it, we saw Djokovic winning rallies that a 36-year-old man should not be winning. We saw the new clutch, just demoralizing shot. For Djokovic, it's his return to serve. It's demoralizing. You miss a first serve, you start to panic. That's been his staple since he's become the greatest of all time for Carlos Alcaraz. It is that drop shot. I don't think anybody's done it better. The way he does it, just with, it's so slick. And the way he just puts it over the net just ever so lightly, it's a thing of beauty. But the thing to me that was the most staggering yesterday was that Carlos Alcaraz won the match after losing the fourth set. I tune into the fifth set and I expect Novak Djokovic to win. Because it's Novak Djokovic, 23-time major champion, greatest tennis player of all time. Why wouldn't he win in a fifth set? In particular, after Alcaraz wins the third, you have that momentum, you lose it in the fourth. Alcaraz faced two break points In the first game of the set, he fought them off. But to me, to think, okay, you're going to a fifth set and he finds a way to win this, that was puzzling to me. It was impressive. It was everything you'd want it to be. A fantastic match with drama. Djokovic smacking his uh, his racket. Nobody rooting for Djokovic. 
in particular, I don't think many people were on. I think people were rooting for Carlos. They wanted the youngster to get his first Wimbledon title. Djokovic is polarizing for many reasons. Been through it before. He's got a number of different... He's got a way about him that's just very arrogant. That's very pompous. I don't like the guy. I respect him as an athlete. I don't like him at all. But to me, he's so good in these situations. He's beaten Roger Federer in fifth sets at Wimbledon. He's beaten Rafael Nadal in, in these situations. And he couldn't beat Carlos yesterday. And you, you see this result. Carlos gets a second major at 20 years old. To me, this is obviously the most impressive because when he won the U.S. Open, Djokovic was not allowed to play there because of COVID. So this is the real indicator for me that it's his big major, it's his moment. But I don't view this as a passing of the torch yet. Just a month ago, Djokovic beat Alcaraz in France. Four sets on the red clay. Alcaraz got cramps. He was non-competitive in the third and fourth set. Doesn't matter. Djokovic won the match. So to me, Djokovic is not done. That's not how, how I view this. Is Alcaraz the number one player in the world? Is he on the come up? Absolutely. But can Novak Djokovic win more majors? Yes. And I think the interesting element of it all now is Carlos is going to be number one. Djokovic is number two, meaning they can only meet in Grand Slam finals. There's one more Grand Slam this year. It's in New York. They will only meet if they are in the final with one another, the way it should be. Next year in Australia, Djokovic isn't retiring. He's still playing too good, and I think he wants to play longer than Nadal and then Federer did. That might be his own ego thing, or also because he's still very much at the top of his game. But how many grand slams can Carlos take from Djokovic? Can Carlos keep Novak's number down because he's so good? Because he's younger, because he might be more fit, this, that, and the next thing. He doesn't have as much wear on the tires. Because other than Carlos, there's a lot of really good men's tennis players. But nobody is on Djokovic's level, and it's not close. Djokovic might play in Canada. I doubt it. This summer, he might play at the Atlanta Open. A few of these events. In Washington, maybe. But how many... He might not win because he'll lose a match because it's not that big of a deal. But he's played center, who's on the come-up, same age as Alcaraz, at the last two Wimbledons. He's beat them both times. And this year is easier than, than the previous year. Hatchinoff, he's, I think he's 9-1 against Karen all time. Holger Rune is very good, but he's young, and I don't think he's on the level of either of these guys yet. Sissy Paz is an up-and-down contender. He's been in multiple major finals, but he hasn't broken through. 
Sasha Zverev, again, to me, Novak only has one competitor, and it is Carlos. And the thing with tennis is you need both sides to deliver. You need Carlos to get to the final. You need Djokovic to get to the final as well. And truth be told, going into New York, going into Australia, to me, I have way more faith that Novak Djokovic will get to the major final because he's done it so many times. Because he's he's been in the majors. He's done it, been there, done that. He is still at the top of his game. But how many of these finals will they compete in with one another? And how many can Carlos win while Djokovic is active? Because that, that's an interesting element to me. He is so different, Carlos, from a lot of different players. He takes chances. He goes for drop shots. He has the creativity of very few tennis I mean, he just, he'll pull off anything. He goes big on the return to serve. He is a phenom. I remember telling my mother, this kid's really good. And she's like, ah, I don't think he's that good. And I'm, I'm like, he's, he's that good. He's already got two grand slams. The kid's 20. And he's got two grand slams. And the men's, like I just said, the men's game is good. It's not great. The men's final was the best match of the tournament. Yes. But overall, the women's side of the bracket at most of these majors is better. Because there's competition, because there's the unknown. Five of the top six seeds were in the last eight on the women's draw. An unranked woman won it. And there was no ranked woman in the final. That's interesting. We may start seeing that in the men's game. We saw Christopher Eubanks make a great run into the quarterfinal. And he gave Medvedev everything he could handle in that five-set uh, quarterfinal. When Djokovic is gone and Nadal retires after next season, we may see more of this. Where Carlos is great, but he's not going to be as good as Djokovic or Federer or Nadal. I don't think any. I think the kid's awesome. If he could get 10 grand slams, that is a hell of a career. It's a Hall of Fame career that's elite of the elite, and it's it's saying that right now you have four chances a year and he's only 20, but it's so hard to win them. And if Djokovic plays one to two more years, Djokovic will win at least two more majors, in my opinion, because he's still right there. And if Carlos can win one a, you know, one a year, if he doesn't get any major injuries, which he's already kind of he missed Australia this year because he was dealing with something. So he needs to stay healthy on a regular basis. But these two can spark men's tennis 
into for the next couple of years, these two men, making it interesting, seeing them on opposite sides of the draw and what they can do. Can they get back to a major final? In August, in New York, this is what the mothership wants. They want this final again. Djokovic, Rune would be fun. Yes. Djokovic and an American would be fun. Yes, it would not rate as high as this. And I'll tell you why. Because nobody believes the American that found its way to the final. It's Francis TFO. It's Christopher Eubanks. If it's Taylor Fritz, nobody's buying that they're beating Djokovic in a final. The sell will be, can they win a set? This kid has played Djokovic three times and he's beaten him twice. So in a major final. So now he has that on his resume. So there's belief that that Alcaraz could beat Djokovic. Because to me, you appreciate greatness. But in 2018 and 2019, 2017 to 2019 really, in the NBA, the product was almost not watchable because you knew the Golden State Warriors were going to win. They were going to decimate the league and LeBron was on the Cavaliers and it was a no contest. Sweeps, sweeps, and they would have beaten the Raptors if it wasn't for the injuries. Gold State would have won three straight championships. But it was it was it wasn't a great product because there was no drama. There was no intrigue. There was not a really a reason to watch because you knew who was going to win. The thing about gambling, the thing about any of these stuff, we watch sports because of the unknown. We watch sports because we have to try to figure out what's going to happen. But the fun is we don't know. I'm prepping for the NFL season. There'll be podcasts coming out in August about the NFL. Top quarterback list, the most interesting storylines, uh, best defenses, best offenses. That's all coming up. I'm projecting. I don't know. I'm doing a deep dive. I'm doing my research, of course. But do I know? No. There, a guy could blow his knee in week one. Then it all goes to hell. Then everything I said can be meaningless. But sports would be no fun if we knew who was going to win. And that was as close to what it was in the NBA. And I think for the last little while in tennis, we knew who was going to win. Novak Djokovic is head and shoulders above the rest. Who is going to compete with him? Nadal's hurt. His knees suck. He's got hip problems. He's gone. Federer's retired. Andy Murray's not at the top of his game. I've mentioned these other guys. But now we have Carlos. We have Carlos who's emerged. And this isn't about hating Djokovic. I appreciate Djokovic. I think the guy's a pompous asshole. He's got a lot of Tom Cruise in him. But he's so talented. He's the best ever. And you appreciate what he can do. 
But you could have argued, reading books, because I wasn't allowed to see this. But when the Islanders won that fourth title, it was the most interesting Stanley Cup that they won because the Oilers were so damn good. And it went seven games, and you felt like the Oilers could beat them. There was belief there. And then the next year, the Oilers finally dethroned the champs. Now we have that. We have the intrigue of Novak can be beaten by somebody in this new era in a major. Because otherwise you're just going into a semifinal. Djokovic, A side, the B side, you have center. Can this be a fun competitive match? Will there be some intrigue? Will, will Djokovic drop a set? Going into the final, Djokovic had only lost three service games the entire tournament. That is a record for Grand Slams. He was cruising through Wimbledon. Carlos was there at the finish line. He zoomed by him. He has, he's 16, he has 16 years on Novak. And Novak was pissed. He was mad. He lost. And he gave a great concession speech. Good for him. But it bothered him that he lost to Carlos. He believes he should have won that match. He should have another Grand Slam in his trophy case. And another Wimbledon title. But this adds to the intrigue. This adds to the drama of it all. And we now have a rivalry at the top of the men's game, which is phenomenal. An amazing match yesterday. Oddly enough, it was early in the morning, but it was the perfect time for it. Following along on Twitter, everybody was watching this match. And it was, it was fun. It was, it was really fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Great competition. And ultimately, Carlos comes out on top. The women's final featured Ange Jabur and Marketa Vontarusova. I'll tell you, this was a heartbreaker. Jabber is such a likable person. You watch her play tennis and you look at her and say, what's she doing this highly ranked? What's she doing in back-to-back -back Wimbledon finals? And yet, even though she lost, she's the, gr she's the best grass court tennis player in the female game right now. Back-to-back -back Wimbledon finals. And she's, she beat some big names. She beat Rabakina. She beat Sabalenka to get to this point. But she didn't have it in the final. And she falls to 0-3 in Grand Slam finals, including twice at Wimbledon. 
She had a 4-2 lead in the first set. She lost that six, lost that set 6-4. 3-1 lead in the second set. She lost it 6-4. When she got breaks, her serve broke down. Couldn't land a first serve. She was so uncharacteristic with her unforced errors. And then to me, in three Grand Slam finals, where she's never won a set, it seems that the nerves come over her and they just, they take over. She can't control it. And before you know it, the match is over. Credit to Vondarusova, who had been to a final in 2019. But that's, 2019 wasn't yesterday. And she battled through and becomes the first unseeded woman ever, ever to win Wimbledon. That's incredible. That's impressive. And that is what is so fun about the women's game is you don't know who's going to win. Major to major, you don't know who's going to win. Sure, you have your favorites. You go on FanDuel and you have your guys that you like a lot. Guys and women that you like you like a lot. You're like, okay, these they're really good. But you don't know. Inga Schweintek is the number one player in the world. She's won four majors. But I mean looking at there's no Serena Williams right now. There's nobody that you look at and just go, well, that's that's a given. That's easy. But I'm going to go through the last number of years here. So let's go 2022. Ashley Barty, she's retired. Schweitek, Rabakina, Schweitek. This year, Sabalenka, Schweitek, Vondarusova. 2021, Osaka, currently not playing pregnant. Krecheva, Ash Barty, Emma Raducanu. Sophia Kennan. I mean, there's so many different names here. Bianca won back in 2019. So you have your favorites. Sabalenka and Rabakina have arguably been the two most consistent, the two best players in the world on the WTA side. And Sabalenka has been to a semifinal in every major this year, but she's only won one. She's only, she was only able to capture one of them. And Vonda Rusova breaks through. And Serena Williams was, was great for a long period of time. To me, she's one of the best athletes of all time, not, to just, not just the best female tennis player. But it was Djokovic-like one-way traffic. It was her dominating. Maria Sharapova was labeled as her biggest rival. And I think Sharapova beat her twice in her career. The first time they met, Sharapova won. That started this intrigue. And then Serena flattened her like a waffle. It was over. It was nowhere. It was, it was no rivalry. Halep kind of came into contention for a while towards the tail end of Serena's greatness, but then Halep's gotten in trouble with PED. She's not even on the tour anymore. 
She may never play again. But Serena Williams' career, I mean, it was... Who can make it interesting? I mean, Victoria Azarenka won back-to-back years at the Australian Open. But you go here, 2015, Serena won three of the four. Kerber won one in there. Ostapenka, the 17-year-old. Muguruza. We've seen women rise to the occasion. Wozniacki won her only major. Halep, Ash Barty. But more often than not, it was a one-off where a woman had a great tournament and then Serena continued her dominance. And I think Schweintex got four. And you look around, Kvitova's got two, but she's not really a major threat anymore. Kerber has dropped off. She's not to that level. Osaka's pregnant, so she's not currently active. So you're looking for somebody, is somebody going to be the face of this era in women's tennis? And it very well could be Schweintek, but she might just be great on clay. Three of her four majors are on clay. She's never won at the Australian. She's never won on grass. So until you do that, that, that's the first, that's the starting point for you to get to that level. But to me, it's not a bad thing that the women's game is so wide open. Jabber, Von Rusova, Sabalenka, uh, Svitolina, another unranked woman who makes a deep run. It's an unknown every tournament. In Canada, we all loved, we all would love to see Bianca Andreescu get back to her height. And I think she had a good Wimbledon considering everything. With the weather and how it started for her, and she only started her tournament on Thursday. She performed well. And you'd love to see continued growth in, in, for the Americans. Could Sophia Kennan, a former major champion, find her game a little bit? Can she get back into the swing of things because she was really good and then she wasn't quickly? Radakanu beat Canada's Layla Andy Fernandez. And then it was just... That was in 2021 at the U.S. Open. Since then, she's fallen off. We don't hear from her. She didn't play. She wasn't at Wimbledon. So it's, it's just, it, it's always a different story with the women's game. Since Serena left, there hasn't been a woman that's been, we're set in stone. We feel comfortable locking you in as a favorite. Schweintek would go into the, I'm sure she was the favorite going into Wimbledon. But it, do you feel comfortable making that bet? No. She's never won at the event. She's never won. She's never won a Wimbledon title. So making her the favorite, it's difficult to, to fathom, quite frankly. And we got a long way to go before we get to the U.S. Open. A lot of different events have to happen, as I mentioned. Looking ahead here, 
We got the Atlanta Open on the 24th, the City Open, which is a fun one in Washington. Then we have the National Bank Open presented by Rogers, that is in Montreal and Toronto. Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati, which is a big event. And the U.S. Open starts on the 28th. So we have a whole hardcore summer to get through here where things will happen. But tennis is a niche sport. Just like, I, to me, golf has is, is rising faster than tennis when it comes to being a niche sport. Maybe because I watch golf every week. I was watching golf last night at 8 p.m. seeing Norman win his first career PGA Tour event at the Bars Ball, which w w wasn't a high, wasn't a, a, a big event, didn't have a whole lot of fanfare, but I love watching golf. But Novak might not win another tournament. He might not play many events this summer, but he'll be in New York. He hasn't been in a while because of COVID. He'll be back. Alcaraz will be there. And that's what we remember. Tennis is like the Olympics. We, people tune in when the majors arrive. When there's a reason to, for, for, better, for better word. You get to New York... They're playing in Queens. The eyes will be on the tennis world. To me, the best two tournaments of the year are Wimbledon and are the U.S. Open. And they're both in the summertime. They both have their great things. Prime time at the U.S. Open, that's hard to beat in late August, early September, when you're just you're watching tennis at 8, 8 p.m. at night and there's two matches, a, a women's match and a men's match. I mean, that's the cream of the crop. It's, it's the best. But the surface, Wimbledon. The grass, the way that they are able to create shots, the serves on grass, it's just, it's a different game. But it's fun. It's really fun. And congratulations to Alcaraz and to Vondrusova on their respective victories. Let's pivot to baseball. Baseball is back up and running. I watched a lot of the Houston Angels series this week, which was nuts. If you weren't watching Sunday Night Baseball last night, just watch the ninth inning. Alex Bregman, two-run shot to put the Astros ahead by one. Then Kyle Tucker hits a homer on seemingly the next pitch to the moon. Angels get a run back. Shelly Otani hits his league-leading 34th home run, and then Kyle Tucker saves the game with a diving catch in right field. The Astros take the series two games to one. But that was interesting. The Angels rallied Saturday night. But what I watched for this weekend is just observing certain players when it comes to what's their future and what's the team going to do. For instance, Saturday afternoon, we got a game, Cubs, Red Sox. Red Sox are red hot right now. They are two games out of the wild card spot, but that's not the bigger story. It's the two pitchers, Stroman and James Paxton. Paxton, the big maple, Canadian pitcher, and you have Marcus Stroman, who obviously was with the Blue Jays for a long time and is having... 
one of the best seasons of his career, and it's a year before free agency. So how's that for timing? Stroman is a sub-3 ERA, and Saturday he pitched six innings, one earned run. Pretty damn impressive of Red Sox lineups that's been hitting everything lately. And he was dominant. He was dialed in. He's confident on the mound. And I'm wondering about the Cubs. Because watching the Cubs, they have some pieces that teams will want. Starting with Stroman. Teams need starting pitching. The New York Yankees could use a starting pitcher. You could argue the Blue Jays may want another starting pitcher. I don't think it's at the should be at the top of their wish list, but Marcus Stroman could be there. The Dodgers could certainly use another starting pitcher if they plan on going for it this year and winning a World Series. They're going to win the division, so you're going to be in the playoffs. Do you try to get better? Marcus Stroman would help your team. But do the Brewers do? Do the Rays want another starting pitchers? They start to skid a little bit here in July. But Marcus Stroman, his value is as high right now as it ever will be because his numbers are great. There's no hiccups. And he's, he's doing everything you'd want him to do. His ground ball rate's one of the highest in baseball, 288 ERA. He's dialed in, completely dialed in. So if I'm the Chicago Cubs, who currently sit eight games out of first place in their division, and they play in a bad division, by the way, you know who you are. You are a seller. You're not a contender. You are not going to be a wild card team. In the National League, you're eight games out of a wild card spot. So you need to look in the mirror and accept your fate. You know who you are. You're a team that's still on the come up, that's trying to find pieces. So Marcus Stroman needs to be one of those guys that gets traded. Justin Steele, another guy, made the all-star team. Another starting pitcher that I think teams would inquire on. Could you, what could you get for him? You're not competing for anything at this point. You're not making the postseason, so why not? Strowman's on a one-year contract. He's a free agent at the end of the year, so he'll be looking for a new contract. There's also Cody Bellinger on the Chicago Cubs. Cody Bellinger, who was lost. Confidence shot. He had nothing. He left the Dodgers, and he was a... A mess, quite frankly. He had nothing going for him. He was batting under 200. Now he's on the Cubs. He's batting 300 on the season. The power isn't there. He's only got 12 home runs. But he's batting 300. There's value in that. He's playing some center field. He's playing first base for the Cubs. He has some versatility that you can add to a lineup. And I, I like Cody Bellinger. 
for one year. You're only going to have him for one year. Get him to the playoffs, trying to win a World Series. Let another team overpay him for production he probably won't give you. That's how you view all this. I don't want to sign Marcus Stroman long-term if I'm a team. But if I'm, if I'm the Phillies, if I'm the, the Yankees, do I trade for him, hoping to get to the postseason? Maybe we go on a run? Yeah. Yes, because why not? And the Cubs are going to look at this saying, come back. If you want to, come back. We'll take you back after the season. You go try to win a World Series. We'll sign you a three, four-year contract here in Chicago. But Marcus Stroman is not good enough of an asset to keep through a trade deadline. He's not worth, he's not, okay, we, we should resign him now because we fear losing him. To me, that, that's stupidity. That is not the right way to approach it. It's, it's not smart. You need to look at it with a bigger lens. Yes, he can be our starting pitcher next year, but we can get him in November. We'll be in contact with him in November. We'll talk to his agent. We'll work out a contract. Come back to us. Come back to us when we're a better team. We have some better prospects we can put in our pipeline. Because we're not keeping you through the trade deadline. So why don't you go try to win? And we'll have to pay you more if you're great in the postseason. If you pitch in the postseason, then we'll have to pay you more, and that's on us. Same for Cody Bellinger. My biggest thing here is if I'm the Cubs, if I'm the Pirates, these teams know who they are. And some teams don't have many assets and they stink. But some teams that are out of it do. You trade them as soon as possible. Marcus Stroman started on Saturday. I really don't want him to make another start if he doesn't have to. Because what if it's a bad start? What if he gets injured? Then it goes down the drain. Then you get nothing for the asset. The Pirates got swept over the weekend. They're 10 and a half games out of first place in the division. They're not going anywhere. Now, do they have players teams would want? They're not trading Brian Reynolds. They sign him in the offseason. McCutcheon, he's older. I'm not sure anybody really wants him at this point. He's pretty much just an everyday DH. G-Man Choi, who knows? Um... Carlos Santana seems to get traded every trade deadline, so maybe that the veteran first baseman would go onto a, a playoff team. So there's that. I'm actually going to watch the Pirates tonight. They're playing the Guardians. I kind of want to see what, what they look like. The Rockies. Elias Diaz, the catcher who won the All-Star Game MVP. Does he have any value? The Rockies took two or three from the Yankees, by the way, on the weekend. Woof. But they might have a, a reliever. Matt Cope's had a good season. Does he have any value on the open market to teams? But if I'm one if I'm a bottom feeder team, you know who you are. And I move yes, the trade deadline's in early August. And teams are waiting to see where they are, and that's that's a typical phrase. 
But to me, this year in baseball, it's really simple. To me, it's very simple. You can go through it right now. Tampa knows who they are. They want to be a playoff team. They believe they can win a World Series. They're skidding right now as they go into a series with the Texas Rangers, but they know who they are. Baltimore. How about Baltimore? First series back, they got the Red Hot Marlins. They sweep them. They sweep them. They're now only a game back of the Rays. They are they play just smart, fundamentally good baseball in Baltimore. They already have 57 wins on the season. They can pitch, they can they need to improve their pitching. But they know who they are. They need to look at themselves in the mirror and say if we really want to have a chance to win a World Series, we probably need two starting pitchers. Because I like the back end of their bullpen. Bautista might be the best closer in baseball. But your starting pitcher, starting pitching is below average, and you have 57 wins. Will that catch up with you? Probably. Stroman. Does he want to become a Baltimore Oriole? He knows what it's like to pitch in the American League East. He knows the pressure cooker that that is. If I'm Baltimore, I'm calling on Marcus Stroman. But to me, you need two starting pitchers. Two starting pitchers. Chicago White Sox, Lucas Giolito. Not having his best year by any means. The White Sox stink, by the way, even though they took two or three from the Braves this weekend. But would he, he could be on the move to Baltimore. Strowman could go to Baltimore. They don't like to spend a whole lot of money. But you're in this position where you're such a good team, you need to improve it. The Blue Jays know who they are. I talk about this all the time. To me, the Houston Astros and the Toronto Blue Jays are the two biggest threats in the American League. And yes, Texas in first. And yes, Baltimore and Tampa are ahead of Toronto. I don't care. That's why I view this. Because I just look at Houston, they have that championship DNA, and I look at the Blue Jays with their pitching, with their bats, the bottom of their lineup, they are a dangerous team. They need to look at making improvements, certainly. Pinpoint these teams that can help you and go make deals. Find the trades that make sense for you. And you always think, well, the Cardinals are selling. Maybe they can be a team as well. That, that would make a deal. The Nationals, who knows? They stink. Toronto's, the Boston Reds, this is one of the two teams that will wait before the trade deadline. The Boston Red Sox. The Boston Red Sox are nine back in the division. They're not winning the division. But they are only two games back of Houston in the wild card race. Only three games back of the Toronto Blue Jays. The Red Sox haven't lost the Toronto Blue Jays all year. They're 7-0. They took two or three from the Cubs. They've won nine of their last 11 games. So they're in this position where they know they are a competitive group. Justin Turner has been better than anybody, including John Henry, who owns the Red Sox, thought he would be. Rafael Devers is starting to come around. 
I still love Rafael Devers. Rob Ref Snyder, okay, great. Yoshida, I knew he'd be good. He is good. He had six RBIs yesterday. The pitching has held up. Paxton had a brutal day on Saturday. But overall, the Red Sox have been one of the more surprising teams to me this entire season. They are six games above 500, and they have the same record as the Yankees on July 17th. To me, the Red Sox are going to wait a while before they decide what they're going to do. Because if it gets to that point, they may want to trade James Paxton, the big maple. Because, well, he's on a one-year contract. He's pitching really well. Let's see what we can get for him. Justin Turner has another year after this one. But would a team with a surging contender want him? As a guy that can be a DH, that can be a first baseman, potentially. Boston has the athletics this week. Good series to have the Oakland Athletics. Always good to be playing the Oakland Athletics. Then they got the Mets at home for three. Then they have the Braves in Boston. Not all that fun. Then they go to San Francisco, a playoff team. This is this all the series before the trade deadline. Then they're in Seattle for the trade deadline series. They will know who they are, but they are one of the few teams this season that needs to wait, that will wait to see what kind of position they're in. John Henry and the Boston Red Sox brass have to do this for a couple of reasons. If they can make the playoffs, they're going to make the playoffs. But also, they can't sell off pieces at this point because their fans would rebel. Their fans believe they're in a position to win, so they will wait. And you can make a, a good argument that the Red Sox are, yes, they have the same record. I think they're better than the Yankees. The Yankees are such a flawed team. Such a flawed team. And I would be afraid of the Yankees if they got in to the postseason. They don't get hits. They can't do Aaron Judge. You hear nothing on him coming back. Who knows? That brings us to the Yankees. They're another. We know what they're going to do. They'll add because they're the Yankees and they have to. But I'll tell you, the Yankees, if I'm adding, I'm doing it sooner rather than later. You lost two out of three to the Rockies. The Rockies stink. Stink. And you lost two out of three of them. Now you go play the Angels. Who are where we thought that they're skidding. They are going into the mud. They now have to make decisions on Shohei Otani. It's the biggest topic in sports. Is what do they do with Shohei Otani? Do they trade him? Do they keep him? Do they sign him to an extension? What happens? The Yankees are playing the Angels tonight, and you, they, you know they would love to get Shohei Otani. They'd love to get him. And they don't want him to start next year. They want him now. Try to win. Brian Cashman might not be the GM next year. Aaron Boone might not be the manager. It's completely up in the air in New York. 
But to me, though, they will add even if they're in this position. And the Angels aren't a difficult team. They're not a good team. But the Yankees aren't beating anybody right now. They're no threat. They got the Angels for three. Then the Yankees got the Royals. Good series for them. <laughs> then they got the Mets. Subway series. For two. Then the Yankees go to Baltimore for three. And they got the Rays. The so they got two division series. They got a tough schedule. Tough enough schedule before the All-Star break. But though the, the Red Sox, every team in the American League East, to me, will be. And the only team that will sell is Boston. If they're at the position in a couple weeks where they're out of it. They're four or five back in the wild card race. I think they will concede. Because I think they'll look at themselves and say, are we better than Baltimore? Are we better than Toronto? Are we better than Houston? No? Okay. Check, please. But if you go through the rest of the league, Minnesota, they know who they are. They believe they can win their division. They have a two and a half game lead on Cleveland because Cleveland was swept this weekend by Texas. So Minnesota looks at themselves and says, we can win our division, we win our division, we're in the playoffs, which is a fact. Our team isn't all that good. We like our pitching. But if we get in, maybe we make something happen. I don't expect them to do much at a trade deadline. Cleveland. I think Cleveland will be competitive without doing much to help their team. Meaning they'll look at Jose Ramirez, they'll look at Stephen Kwan, Josh Naylor, who's having a great year, and say, Willis. Shane Bieber, get off the IL and help us win. This is the group. If you're going to get to the playoffs, it's with this team. Not much help. Detroit, sell. Chicago, sell. The rest of the American League Central, all sellers. They're not going anywhere. And a lot of these teams, they're young teams. I don't think they want to trade a whole lot of pieces, but they don't get a whole lot of great things to trade. Like the Tigers. Kerry Carpenter is this prospect they have in right field. I don't think they want to trade him because I think they want to see what they have in him. He's only played 80 Major League Baseball games, and he's shown a little bit. They're not trading him. Spencer Torkelson was a former number one overall pick. To me, he's been disappointing since being called up. I don't think they give up on him just yet. They're starting pitchers. Who knows? It, they're, they're a team that has more problems than solutions. The White Sox, I, I mentioned Lucas Giolito. He could be a target. Maybe they would look into trading Dylan Cease. They're not trading Luis Robert Jr. I don't see them trading Tim Anderson, but who knows? He's been a problem in his time in Chicago. I don't think they love his attitude all the time. There's also Andrew Benatendi, who teams really like. He's been in the postseason. He's batting 290 on the season. 
Not a power guy, but a guy that hits for average, that gets on base, can steal some. Was with the Kansas City Royals and was traded to the Yankees at the trade deadline last year. Wasn't all that good in the stint with the Yankees, but again, maybe. Texas. Texas is an all-in. They will be, I think they'll add something. I don't know how significant it will be because they're already spending a pile of money. But they have a three-game lead on the Houston Astros. And to me, Houston is under more pressure to add than Texas. Because to me, Texas has a very good team. A very good team. And Jacob deGrom's done for the year. He had Tommy John, and that's a huge blow. But they've overcome it. And could they use another starting pitcher? Yes, that wouldn't hurt this team. But Houston has so many young pitchers, they need to improve their team. Texas, Simeon has been fantastic this year. Corey Seager couldn't have been better. I mean, half their team was on the all-star team. They sweep their first series back. So Texas is to be feared. Houston, I just mentioned, had a fun game last night, fun series. I love Kyle Tucker. Bregman is starting to heat up a little bit. Dubon's a fun player. Abreu at first base. McCormick. Yanir Diaz, a catcher, has been better than anybody thought he'd be. Yolks, the youngster uh, left fielder. They got a young group. They still need Altuve to come back. Jordan Alvarez needs to come off the injury list. So they, have, they have enforcements coming. But they have so many young starting pitchers. It's Valdez and, a, and Javier's is an older guy. But they need some experience, some experience starting pitching, in my opinion, at the trade deadline. Who does that come from? It's not going to be from the Angels. It's not going to be Shoei Otani. Unlikely Seattle, who had a bad, bad weekend, lost two or three to the Tigers. Although these, these teams have made in-division trades, but I don't think Seattle wants to be trading away pieces. I mean, would they trade Kirby or, or Logan Gilbert? Maybe. But I, I think it'd be smarter for Houston to maybe Oakland, St. Louis, San Diego, potentially, after their weekend. But you know, you know where they are. Seattle, they're, they're a question mark team. What do they do? They need to wait a couple weeks. Angels, to me, they're sellers. Oakland Athletics, obvious sellers. They only have 25 wins. Atlanta, going for it. Needs, starting pitching. Yes, they lost two or three this weekend, but they still have 61 wins. I'm not doubting them yet. Marlins got swept by the Orioles. It was it's one of the bigger developments of the weekend where the Orioles just, they take all three at Camden Yards. They're a very good team, and the Marlins kind of got put in their place a little bit. There were levels to this kind of a weekend for Miami. They're a wait-and-see team. They don't like to spend a whole lot of money. They need to be in a position to make sense. Currently, they are in a wild-card spot. They're the second wild-card spot in the National League, and they're a game and a half, half game back of San Francisco for the top wild-card spot. Arizona trails them by half a game. Philly trails uh, Miami by two games. 
So it's very close. Cincinnati trails them by two games, and it's way back. You have San Diego and, and the Cubs. But these teams need to know, or the, and the Marlins, I think they need to look at their situation. I mentioned how tough their second half is, just like the Orioles. But they need to be playing good baseball for that management group to say, you know what, we're going to add to this team. Because otherwise, you don't feel all that comfortable with this team. I like the Marlins. I think they're fun. I think they're they're a fun team to watch. I watched a lot of that Miami-Baltimore series this weekend. But you lost all three. And, and it's alarming for the Marlins because now you go you play St. Louis this week. They're a bad team. You need to win. You need to win those games. And Arias is still batting 380. He had a four for five night on Saturday. But he's, he's fallen off a bit. Solaire can only do so much. He hits home runs. But their pitching needs to improve. They need to, they'll reevaluate this. The Phillies, Phillies are the most dangerous team in the National League. Phillies take three of four from the Padres. Winning extras yesterday in a thriller. Clutch hitting from Bryce Harper. Kyle Schwarber comes up in the clutch a few times. This Phillies team is legit. They're still, they're still going through the season trying to find their way. And Schwarber's only batting a buck 89. But he finds a way to do it. Bryce Harper's coming off Tommy John surgery. He can only DH. He has no power. But he, he finally got a home run on Saturday. But he's batting 300 and only four homers in the season. But again, Tommy John surgery and he's playing. Bryson Stott, Alec Baum has been great. First base, third base platoon. You have Castellanos. I like, I like the Phillies. And to me, the Phillies, they made the World Series last year. They will be aggressive again. I truly believe that. They will look at their situation and say, how can we improve this team? Do we need another middle reliever? Is there a starting pitcher? I think part of the problem for these teams is a lot. I don't know how much movement there will be. These teams might just be taking chances on a pitcher that hasn't proven much. That hasn't been that good. Because it will get interesting if there's a sale. For instance, if the Mets would trade Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander. They're eight and a half back in the wild card. They're 18 and a half back in the National League East. They dropped two or three to the Dodgers. And to me, this weekend, I'm watching Saturday night. They're done. It was signaled to me they're done. It was in the eighth inning. Brett Beatty, the third baseman, so it was the ninth inning. An air, a routine fly ball, he drops it. In the middle of the infield, and a run scores, and ends up having a, a, a minute later is a home run. The game goes to 5-1. It's over. It's over. Before you know it. And they, they won in extras yesterday, but they're still trying to find their way. Those, those, they're still trying to tell people that they have a chance, and I'm not sure they do. I don't think they do.
I mean, eight and a half back in a wild card situation, it's tough to overcome. But they have a couple weeks to look at this, and Steve Cohen has already opened the door to say we're going to sell. If you're going to sell, it's going to be those pitchers to me, because otherwise, shed some payroll and regroup. Because Jeff McNeil won a batting title. He's batting 248 this season. Alonzo's batting 207. His power numbers have dipped. Starling Marte, Brett Bain, there's no... But Scherzer, he went seven innings yesterday. One hit, three walks. And he's got an ERA at four currently, but if he can have performances like that, then there's interest. David Robertson, he's 38, he's small, but he's been in a lot of huge, this is a middle reliever, I think teams would want. He's four and two in the season, 41 innings, he's been their closer. He hasn't been the problem. He's been really good. I mean, he's in his career, he's pitched for the Rays. He's pitched for the Phillies last year, going to the World Series. Cubs, Phillies again, Yankees, White Sox. He's won World Series. He's been in, pitched in World Series games. That's a name to keep an eye on, David Robertson, is what team could scoop him up from the Mets. He will have value. Washington, Seller. National League, Milwaukee going for the division title. Just like Cincinnati, Milwaukee swept Cincinnati this weekend. Christian Yelich is playing really good for the Brewers. Real turnaround for him. He's playing well. Brewers coming off a sweep playing the Phillies. This week, so that's an interesting series. Cincinnati is hosting San Francisco. So two teams in a wild card race, two teams in, in a divisional race. San Francisco somehow is competing for a division title. They're a game and a half back of the Dodgers. Don't get it, but they are. Cubs been over at Pittsburgh, St. Louis, National League. Dodgers going for it, obviously. San Francisco, they keep winning. They keep winning with a team that is doesn't have really a face of the team. Nobody that stands out. Camilio Duvall, their closer, leads the league in saves. So that's something. He's been really good. They went yesterday in, in extras at PNC Park. And again, they get that Arizona, what's got swept by the Blue Jays, just not a, not as good a team as the Blue Jays. Now they have the Braves. Poof, that's tough. Go Blue Jays to the Braves to start the second half. Then they go to Cincinnati, another team that's in a race. Host the Cardinals before the uh, trade deadline. Then the, the weekend before the trade deadline, they have the Mariners in Arizona. So they're a team that will have to make a decision as well. 
I don't think they want to sell that much because they have a young team. And I think they want to keep where they are. But do you add, do you, this, these are the decisions teams have to make. So I just went the, through the entire baseball world there. But the big thing is, it, it's pretty clear where most teams stand. There isn't a whole lot of shifting that's going to be done. If I'm teams like the Cubs, you want to wait to get the best offer. I get it. But get a good deal done with a team and, and improve, help them improve their roster quicker. Like to me, the Yankees should be trading for starting pitching now. Not in two and a half weeks. Because you need to win games too sweet. You need to be in the mix. You're losing to the Rockies in series. That, that can't happen. So if you're a cashman, you look at the situation and say, why wait till early August? Let's do it now. Why wait two weeks when I can get somebody in my roster today? That can help me. And if you pinpoint that and it's Marcus Stroman, then you do it. But to me, the trade deadline is fascinating because of Shohei Otani. Obviously, that's the obvious one. But the Mets are the second most juicy team, if you will. What do they do? Scherzer, Verlander, both have a year left. Would teams be willing to take on that extra year of that deal and it's 40 plus million dollars for both men and both guys are over 40 but if you're a team that believes that you can win would you do it if you're the Yankees and you believe that you can get Shohei Otani in the offseason you get Shohei just play this game with me. You have Scherzer. You have Carlos Rodon. You have Garrett Cole. And you have Domingo Herman as your starting five going into next season. Be pretty good. Be a pretty good starting five. And you get Scherzer, yes, you'd have to pay that extra year, but that's just money for the Yankees. They have a high payroll already. You paid Aaron Judge all that money to win a World Series. I didn't think it was smart, but they did it, and he's missed half this year. Josh Donaldson will be off the roster next season. You'll have decisions to make with other parts of your roster, but if you made that deal and you hope to make the playoffs this year, but then you sell to Otani. We got Max Scherzer, the warrior god here, who wants to win a championship. Now, would Steve Cohen trade with the Yankees? That's another thing. Be a bad look in his own city. But it could be bad PR, and then you shed $40 million and you can he'll spend $40 million next year on different pieces that are hopefully better. There's always that possibility. 
So to me, the Mets and the Angels really control how interesting this trade deadline period will be. Because Otani hit home runs in the ninth inning the last two games. His power is still there. His pitching hasn't been as good since he got the blister. But even for this season, if you're acquiring a bat, he's still the best home run hitter in baseball. And he'll figure out his pitching. He's too damn good not to. Could a team land up and go try to win a World Series? If you're Artie Moreno, do you trade away the best asset, you could argue, in baseball history? It's a tough decision. It's a ballsy decision. But if I'm him, I'm looking at my team, I want him to come back, obviously. But I gotta worry about my franchise first. Players come and go. But I don't wanna lose somebody like that for nothing. Baseball action tonight. The Blue Jays are off. They got the Padres series starting manana. The Dodgers are at Camden Yards. Fun series. Giants at the Reds, Logan Webb. Brian Williamson tonight. Rays at the Rangers. Same Shane McClanahan against Dane Dunning. That's a series. Yankees at the Angels for three. Twins Mariners. Actually, decent see a good pitching matchup between Logan Gilbert and Sonny Gray tonight. Some some good baseball on on tap for this evening. To the PGA Tour. Rory McIlroy has won his second event of the season in Scotland over the weekend, just four days before the start of the Open Championship. Won it after birdieing three of his last four holes. He hit a drive over the weekend 430 yards. And he finished second at the U.S. Open. He's playing really good golf, and he beat Robert McIntyre by one stroke. Rory, to me, is in this mode now where Live Golf and the PGA Tour are merging. He doesn't give a fuck. He's just going out there to play golf and dominate. And it might be the best thing for him to have this edge, to have this demeanor about him, that he's a little cavalier, that he's a little reckless, and he's just, he's out there to play golf, to win everything that he can, and be the man. And that's, to me, that's what Rory McIlroy is embodying right now. He's the best driver of the golf ball, of the golf ball on tour. It's not close. And he's confident. He's just confident. He went up against some really good competition this weekend. A lot of great names in the field. And yes, you get some, some weird things because you have McIntyre who doesn't always play in the PGA Tour, but he knows how to play over there on those courses. And you win the week before a major, it helps you. For instance, Rory McIlroy is the betting favorite 
to win the Open Championship now at plus 650. Ahead of Scotty Scheffler, ahead of John Rahm, ahead of Cameron Smith, last year's champion, Brooks Kepka. We have the final major of the year. It's been an interesting year for Rory. Yes, he was great at the U.S. Open, but he kind of had that debacle at following the Masters where he missed the elevated event in, in uh, South Carolina at Hilton Head. And he for, forgo some money there. He's been in the headlines battling with people. He's one of the best quotes on tour. He represents the tour extremely well. But now he's just playing golf. He's in the top 10 in the FedEx. He's in one of the top money earners on the season. He wins this event and now he gets to play at the Open Championship looking to win another major. Where he finished second last year. He's had a lot of close calls, a lot of close calls, and he hasn't won a major in almost a decade. So it would be a great story if Rory McIlroy could win the Open Championship. There's a lot of great names. As we get closer to the start of the tournament, I'll talk about betting lines and where this tournament is going. But yesterday I, I watched, it was on early in the morning, he just looked like a guy that was not going to be stopped. He only shot two under on a Sunday, but it was good enough to win. Sam McIntyre, they had been on, and Ling Mirth and Scheffler, who finished five strokes back. Scheffler's on this crazy run where he's at 20 straight events where he's finished inside the top 10. T3 yesterday. And he heads into another major where, to me, if he can start making putts, he should be the clear favorite to win because he's the best player. He's just that good right now. But Wyndham Clark's coming off a U.S. Open win. How will he do in his first major since? Ricky Fowler's coming off a big win. A couple weeks ago, first half of the season, John Rahm was dialed in. You could argue he was the best golfer in the world since it's been a bit of a struggle bus for him. He hasn't, he hasn't been playing well. He hasn't been at the top of the leaderboards. He missed a cut a few weeks ago. He didn't play at the Scottish Open. So he comes in a little bit under the radar. Can he go on a run? Yes. We saw Kepka win. He was on the live tour earlier in the year. He's never won an open championship. Cameron Smith won on the live event a few weeks ago. Prior to Kepka winning at the PGA, he won the week before at the live event. Then he won at the then he won the PGA championship. Cam Smith won two weeks ago. Can he go back to back at the open championship? We'll see. Victor Hovland won the Memorial this year. Can he break through at a major? He's always in the top 10, seemingly. Morikawa hasn't won an event in a long time. Matt Fitzpatrick, a Brit playing over overseas. 
We'll discuss odds later in the week. But to me, Roy McIlroy put himself in pole position to be the talking point going into the Open Championship, winning the Scottish, o Scottish Open, playing really good golf, and just being dialed into to the approach and what he wants to accomplish. He was so close at the U.S. Open, he just couldn't make a putt on a Sunday. Can he do it over here? We'll wait and see. Finally, to the UFC. It was uh, UFC Vegas 77 this weekend. Not the sexiest event at the Apex. Not a whole lot of big names. But it was a UFC event. And of course, I'm going to watch it. And the biggest thing coming out of it was the main event between Holly Holm and Buena, Buena Silva. Holly Holm has only been submitted twice in her UFC career, and one of them was Saturday night. First round, it was a Holly Holm kind of fight. She closed the distance. She got her opponent up on the cage, and she dominated control and landed some shots. But beginning of the second round, Buena Silva knew what she was going to do. And she got her into a ninja choke, a very unique submission. And Holly Holm could not escape. She held on. But before you knew it, she's tapping early in the second round, the biggest win of her career. She was number 10 going in. She beats number three, Holly Holm. So now I talk Friday about how Holly Holm wins this fight. She deserves to be... Fight, she should fight Juliana Pena for the title because that's a more interesting fight than Raquel Pennington. Well, now I look at it. Juliana Pena is going to be fighting for the belt. That's a given. That's an obvious. But to me, with this win, she's had three straight finishes, all via submission. She beats Holly Holm. That's a bigger win than Raquel Pennington has had recently. I can't remember the last time Raquel Pennington fought. She fought in January against Caitlin Vieira. That's an impressive win. I'll give her that. But her last two, Macy Chiesong, who might not be in the UFC anymore, and Aspen Ladd, who isn't in the UFC anymore. Buena Silva just beat Holly Holm, a former champion. I think she needs to sell this. Yes, it's not her first language, but she can still do it via the media. She needs to sell the fight with Juliana to make it interesting. Because to me, it's more it's a more interesting fight than Raquel Pennington and Juliana. I'd rather see Buena Silva fight Juliana. Juliana's interesting. She can beat you on the ground. She's got good striking. I think it's an interesting matchup. Later this year, for the vacant women's bantamweight title, that would be my approach. But I think it's on her to, to sell it a little bit. But to say, hey, I've gotten these finishes my last couple fights. She submitted Lena Landsberg in February. She submits Holly Holm. She submitted Stephanie Egger. She beat uh, Wu by decision. 
She's won four in a row. Her last loss was to Manal Faro, but that was at flyweight. That was at a completely different division. So she's found her division. Bantamweight is where she's meant to be, and it's where she can be a contender. So to me, that's the fight to make for the women's Bantamweight title. Pennington is not a draw. She's not interesting. Juliana will be the A-side on any fight because she is a heel. She, she likes that position. She likes to be talking and be in the news. But Buena Silva needs to do her part. I see her. She's going on David Mayer with Ariel Hawani today. That's a good thing. That's really good for her. Go on there and talk about one in that title fight. Say you're going to beat her. Sell it. Comain, Jack Della Maddalena. One is in a very close fight with Basil Hafez. First of all, Hafez is a UFC fighter. He's proven that. Now, his significant strikes, nowhere close to Jack Della Maddalena. But I thought his takedowns were good. He's really good on the ground, and he muddied up the fight. I think it could have went either way. I, I think Jack won, and I think he should have won. I think it was the correct decision. But it was not impressive. People on Twitter, a lot of active MMA fighters, believed he lost the fight. Which I get. I don't think it was it was a simple decision either way. Jack wants to fight right away, which I think is good. He should fight right away. To kind of, let's forget about that fight. And move on. He's currently 14th in the rankings. He was going to fight Sean Brady. Who's 9. He said he wants to fight in Sydney. On the Australia card. Against Sean Brady. I would rebook that fight. It was going to be awesome. I still think it will be. When Sean Brady is healthy. That's a whole other story. He's really good. JDL is very good. The welterweight division has a lot of good prospects. Jack Della Maddalena, Ian Machado Gary, who's fighting next month in Boston, Sean Brady, Rachmanov, Bilal. There's a lot of guys that are that are surging that are on the come up. But to me, if I'm the USC, I call Sean Brady and say, let's travel to Sydney. Let's do this fight. And you know, Jack said, "I don't think I don't think Sean wants to travel. I wouldn't give him the option. You owe us a fight here." Let's have this. Let's have this event. We'll see, but I think it's. I think that's the, that's the fight to make. People want to see that fight. And you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of different permutations. There's a lot of fun things in that fight. The way they the way they Sean Brady. I don't think he fought that smart against Bilal Muhammad, but he's got a lot of good skills. I think both guys kind of lack a little bit of fighter IQ. So it'll be interesting to see what they do against one another. But if you can book that in Sydney. Where to me, Sydney's already stacking up to be a really good card. We're going to have a lot of guys from Australia on that card. Israel Adesanya is likely going to headline it. You're going to have uh, 
Kaikara France, who's fighting the flyweight against Manel Cap on that card. City Kickboxing, and Izzy mentioned this yesterday, said they're going to be represented well. Brad Riddell might be fighting on that card, so there's a lot to like there. A guy I like, Terrence McKinney, got submitted in the second round. He got caught. Really, a good fight. Sadikov kept grabbing the cage. Is my one thing with that. He was cheating a lot, and he got away with it. But he is a good fighter. Terrence actually looked great in the first round, better than he had in his previous couple of fights, and a couple where he won. So he has something to look forward to there. This week, UFC, I think there'll be some fights announced this week for the Abu Dhabi card. I just have a feeling that's going to happen this week because tickets went on sale today. That's why I say that. So I think we'll get Dana White with some fight news this week. And this weekend, UFC London, Tom Aspinall against Marcin Tabura. Aspinall's first fight since last March, where he blowed his ACL against Curtis Blades. He's 30. He's still a surging contender at heavyweight. Tabura's won two in a row to his own credit. He's, he's, a, he's a solid fighter. He's been around a long time. He's seven years older than Tom Aspinall, but I expect this to be relatively easy. You have Molly McCann, Nathaniel Wood. We'll preview that later in the week. And any other fight news that comes our way. And finally, the CFL is not for everybody. I get that. It's a sport. It's a niche sport. But this was a weekend where the CFL completely was head and shoulders above the rest. You had a thriller game in Montreal where Chad Kelly, Cody Fajardo are going toe-to-toe, great running games on both sides. And the Montreal, I'm sorry, the Toronto Argonauts end up coming out on top, improving to 4-0 on the season. But then you get to Saturday after that game. The Red Blacks are down 25 to 6 to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And they rally all the way back to win. Dustin Crumb's first career CFL start, 91 rushing yards, two rushing touchdowns, 263 yards passing, and they score 16 points in the final 3 minutes. Pandemonium, a, a walk-off to tie the game. They had to get a two-point conversion to send the game into overtime. Scenes in Ottawa, it was crazy. A phenomenal event and a real change for the Red Blacks who looked like their season was teetering. No Jeremiah Masoli, no quarterback. Maybe they have some hope. And then another thriller in Saskatchewan, it started off with devastation where Trevor Harris... Injured his knee, stretchered off. He needs surgery. They haven't ruled him out for the season yet. The Mason Fine era begins. But the Stampeders walk it off. Rene Paredes, a walk-off field goal, and the Stamps get a big win. So after six weeks, it's wide open in the CFL. We look at the BC Lions and you look at the Argonauts and you say these teams are better. You have, but you look at the rest. In the East, Montreal is two and three. Hamilton is two and three, and the Ottawa Red Blacks are two and three. In the West, Winnipeg's four and two. You have Saskatchewan three and two. Calgary is now two and three. So there's intrigue. Quarterbacks are going down. That's one bad thing. Another quarterback goes down, but Mason Fine 
How will he do in his career? The Elks are 0-6. They got the Blue Bombers this week. Can they get a win? Argonauts at the Tiger Cats. Is Matthew Schultz going to be healthy? He was banged up on Friday, or on Thursday night, pardon me. Rough Riders at the Lions. Mason Fine gets a start for them. And the Red Blacks head to play the Stampeders coming off their crazy, crazy win on Saturday. So that's it for today. Pretty busy weekend. Tomorrow on the program, we had some signings today in the NHL. Going to save those for tomorrow. It should be an interesting NFL day. It is the last day for the franchise tag. Tony Pollard, you got Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, all those running backs looking for new deals. So they come in new deals. DeAndre Hopkins has signed with the Tennessee Titans. We'll break that down tomorrow. Evan Ingram has re-signed with the Jacksonville Jags. We'll talk about that tomorrow. So all that and more coming up on Tuesday's edition of the program. So until then, take care. Have a great rest of your day. This is To The Point.